If you have your Bibles, perhaps you can turn with me to the first, Peter's first letter, 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 3, and we'll be reading in a few moments from verses 18 to 22. So 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. And one of the major themes that we've been considering in 1 Peter has to be, has all to do with living for Jesus, living for Christ, when by doing so will bring suffering, opposition, ridicule, hardship. And 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, which is our passage this morning, continues that theme. Peter was originally writing to a suffering church to give them encouragement. And I think it would be very, very apt for us today as well that Peter is riding to provide encouragement to the church in his day and in ours too. Let's pray together before we read God's word. Almighty God, I pray that you'll take your word and bring it to bear upon our hearts and our lives. I ask that you'd break through our defences, arrest our attention, awaken our consciences that you would call the dead from death unto life. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen. So let's read 1 Peter 3. I'll read from verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Have been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. Amen. We thank the Lord for his holy word. In Second Peter, in, in Peter's second letter, again in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter is commending the writings of the Apostle Paul to his hearers. I don't know if you remember, then Peter adds a little caveat about Paul. And he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Well, when I read that, I was reminded of that. I thought, pot calling kettle black this week, because I cannot help but imagine but Paul reading those lines from Peter and saying, I'm hard to understand. And uh, there are many benefits of sequential expository preaching, which is our practice here on the Lord's Day. There are many benefits to the preacher and to the hearer alike of that approach, and I'm 100% committed to that. But one side benefit for the congregation if not for the preacher, is that you get to watch the preacher squirm and wriggle like a worm on a hook when it comes to difficult texts like this one. There's quite a lot in there. 
you know, and uh, baptism saves you is one right, for it, right off the bat. So allow me to say that when we come to this difficult passage that I'm offering my reading of it with a good deal of provisionality. In fact, I would advise you to watch out for people who say they know what this means, who profess to know for sure what Peter means. You should walk the other way very quickly. I have taught, I looked at my notes, I've taught different interpretations of this myself in the past. I almost flirted with one this summer as well. But Martin Luther, who is the great German reformer, said of these verses, and I quote Luther, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. So if Martin Luther didn't know, we should be willing to admit that we might have it wrong and come to the passage with a certain modesty and humility. All of that is a massive disclaimer, and so you don't write me emails afterwards. But anyway, that is, that, that, that's, that, that's by way of preamble. But I want to look at this through a glorious um, few points about Jesus. About Jesus. And the number one, Christ is our substitute. Verse 18, Peter reminds us that Christ is our substitute. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's Christ the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The for, for Christ, with which verse 18 begins, links the passage back to what preceded it. In the verses just before this one, we considered last Lord's Day. We're to, do, we're to suffer for doing good, Peter has just told us in verse 17, if that should be God's will. So now he says we should do it, for Christ also suffered. Christ is our great example in suffering. The servant is not greater than the master. Christ suffered. And those who follow him must also pick up their cross and walk the path of suffering too. Peter is saying more than Christ is our model and example in suffering. Peter is saying that Christ suffered once for sins. There is a uniqueness and a purposeful character to the sufferings of Christ that cannot be said about any of our sufferings. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 reminds us that unlike the earthly priests in the ancient temple in Jerusalem, who according to the Levitical code, they offered a sacrifice every day. Now Christ has entered once for all. Not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, secure and eternal redemption. Brothers and sisters, the death of Christ has a unique character. It's the once for all sacrifice for sin. No other is needed. Not, not the so-called sacrifice of the mass nor any religious sacrifices that we think we may offer to God in our worship, in our giving or our praying. 
not even in the sacrificial work of giving, not our own goodness, not any words or works that our hands may perform. No, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Christ's sacrifice is the only sufficient sacrifice that meets our need. We have a never-dying soul. We have a need which only Jesus can provide. Notice how it works. It is a sacrifice, Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, the righteous one, offers himself instead of us, who are unrighteous, to bring us to God, to reconcile us to God. Our wickedness and sin exclude us from God. And he receives in himself on the cross the punishment that my sin, your sin, our sin deserves, so we may be reconciled to God. It's the great exchange. The great exchange. It is the swap. He is treated as though guilty. We are treated as though righteous. Not with our own righteousness, but with his. The great exchange. And there is a great illustration of this, a graphic one, in the gospel narrative of the sufferings of Jesus. I looked at this and I was reminded of this again this week. When Jesus is on trial, the mob are baying for his blood and Pilate stands before them and says, who would you like for me to release to you? You know the story well. You can have Barabbas, who's a convicted insurrectionist. He's a murderer. Or you can have Jesus, in whom I find no cause for condemnation. Remember Pilate said that? And they all shout for Barabbas. The mob, the screaming mob. We've seen a few of those recently. What are they, and what is this mob screaming for? Barabbas! And they're shouting for Christ's crucifixion. Barabbas goes, Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. And the name Barabbas means son of the Father. The name Barabbas means son of the Father. It is a beautiful gospel picture. What is it we're being told? We're being told, you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Wicked, guilty before the bar of heaven's justice. Condemned justly in the sight of God. And Jesus Christ stands in my room. Jesus Christ stands in my place and bears the penalty for me so that I might become a son of the Father. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A wonderful picture? The Father's only Son gave himself for me so I might become a son of the Father. The work is all his. There is nothing for you to do. No words, no works, no priests, no sacrifice, no standard to meet, no words to pray, no ritual to perform. There is nothing to do. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice that Christ has done it all. Christ has done it all. The hymn writer said, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears 
can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord to thee, can rid me of this dark distress, the unrest, and set my spirit free. Jesus is our substitute. We have no hope. That hope we spoke of at the beginning of the service, unless it rests on Jesus Christ alone. He can do what you never can. He will pay a price you cannot afford. Is Jesus your substitute? Firstly, Jesus is our substitute. Secondly, Christ, Jesus Christ is our preacher. We're getting into the tall grass now, verses 18 to 20. We're told that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Just pause there, because spirit should be capitalised. He's not talking about his own human spirit, but saying he was made alive in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by God the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked, because I'm not sure is the honest answer. Some people think that the spirits in prison refer to demonic powers who had sinned at some point in the time of Noah. Some people believe that Jesus went to hell at some point, maybe perhaps between his death and resurrection, to proclaim his victory over the unbelieving dead. It's quite a common view, that is. And a very few people think that this passage offers support to some kind of post-mortem opportunity for those who had died without faith to believe the gospel. But I don't find any of those approaches convincing or credible. This is my best, albeit provisional, there's that word again, stab at it. And I've gone back and forth with others on this as well. But having told us of the ministry of the Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead, uh, Peter wants to encourage the suffering church in his day. And he wants to encourage us who live in the age of the Spirit by reminding us of a time in human history when the world was known for its unbelief and wickedness. So Peter talks about the days of Noah and the work of the Holy Spirit back then, as though to say to us what the Spirit did back then, he can do again today. And more now that Christ has risen from the dead. The days of Noah provide for Peter an apt illustration. Noah's time was marked by general immorality and unbelief. Our day is marked by immorality and unbelief. God's believing people were few in number, just Noah's family. And they were mocked and ridiculed for their faith, as we are today. Nobody believed a flood was coming. Nobody, absolutely nobody believed a flood was coming. But Noah obeyed God. 
2 Peter 2 verse 5 calls him a preacher of righteousness. He preached that God is just. That judgment is coming. In the form of a flood. But there is an ark to which you may run for refuge. Come and take refuge. God has provided a way out from the judgment to come. That was Noah's message. Think about this. Every hammer blow he nailed. Every nail he nailed. Every board he hammered home. As he built that ark was preaching that message. Bang! Flood is coming, but there's a way of escape. Bang! There is a flood coming. Judgment is coming. Flee the wrath to come. Bang! There is a flood coming. Trust in the promise of God. Flee to safety. That was Noah's message in word and deed. He built the ark. He proclaimed judgment and mercy. But Peter says his generation did not believe. They didn't obey. The word for obey means to hear and respond to the message. They rejected Noah's sermon. They rejected Noah's message in word and deed. God's patience waited, Peter says, while the ark was being prepared, offering redemption, offering rescue for anyone who would believe. And only Noah's family responded in faith. The result is that at the time when Peter was writing, the spirits of that generation, unbelieving, are now in prison. They're now in hell under the judgment of God. So that's a warning to our generation. Because Peter says that Christ went and preached to that generation in the time of Noah by the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And I take that to mean that Christ preached to Noah's generation in and through the preaching of Noah himself. And I come to that conclusion under the influence of two other passages in 1 Peter. The first is in 1 Peter verse 11, chapter 1, where Peter's talking about the work of the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures who predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come. And they do it by the Spirit of Christ, he says. The Spirit of Christ gave them that message. And Peter is saying here, the same Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Christ by the Spirit through Noah preached to that generation, a generation whose spirits are now in prison. The other passage I found helpful was chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 4, verse 6, where Peter speaks of the gospel preached to even those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. People who are now dead heard the gospel in their life, so that even though they received in their bodies the earthly consequences of sin, they are dead, nevertheless, by believing the gospel, they live in their spirits in the presence of God. Which is a similar thought with a different outcome, because the people who heard the gospel responded differently to the passage that is before us now. In fact, even using some of the same vocabulary. But put it all together. You could paraphrase our passage like this. Christ was made alive in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in which, by whom, he proclaimed to the spirits of Noah's generation 
the people of Noah's generation who are now in prison for their unbelief, the possibility of rescue and the inevitability of judgment. This proclamation took place when God's patience waited while the ark was being prepared in and through the preaching of his servant, Noah, the preacher of righteousness. It means that Christ was the preacher in the preaching of Noah. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the face of a dark, unbelieving generation, when Noah almost alone proclaimed the truth of God, he did so enabled by the Holy Spirit. Christ was the preacher. Now think about Peter's generation, facing opposition, persecution, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Wondering in what strength, by what power, can we see the gospel advance? We feel small and weak. What can we do? How can we make a difference? Peter reminds them of the days of Noah and how Christ, by his Spirit, proclaimed the gospel in the face of darkness. And though many did not believe. So don't be surprised if people don't believe. Some did and were saved. One of the early confessions of the church from Switzerland during the time of the Reformation is the second Helvetic confession. And it says the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. So when you open your mouth and say, let me tell you about Jesus, and you explain the gospel, albeit by lisping, stammering tongues, albeit fearfully, albeit in weakness, Nevertheless, Christ himself is the preacher who proclaims his word. That should give us some backbone. Stand up straight, open your mouth, proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. We don't do it in our own strength. It's not by our persuasive words, but it is Christ who speaks in the gospel by your words. Christ is our substitute. Christ is our preacher. And thirdly, Christ is our rescuer. If Jesus is the preacher by the Spirit, even though many will not obey the word, the point is some will. Some did in the days of Noah. Some will in 2020. I believe it. Noah and his family believed and obeyed. And as a more literal reading of verse 20 might put it, they were saved through water. And that triggered a connection for Peter back to the experience of the believers in the churches to who he was writing. Back to our experience as Christians. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The deliverance of Noah, who believed God, he found refuge in the ark, was saved through water. Peter says is mirrored in Christian baptism. In what way? If we start with the opening phrase of verse 21, the one that makes good Christians break out in a rash, baptism now saves you. Well, what does that mean? Is Peter really saying that Jesus is all you need, is what what we've been saying all service? And then add a little footnote, baptism too? No, he's saying baptism saves us the same way the ark saved Noah. 
You have to believe the promise of God to escape the flood and climb inside. Just picture the scene. It's Saturday night. The work is finished. The ark. The sun is setting. I'm being very, very imaginative, so please forgive me. Noah is kicking back his feet up with the family. They've just enjoyed a meal together. He's feeling a little philosophical and says, I'm not sure I'm really buying this flood business. Would the ark save him? Without faith in Jesus Christ, there is no possibility of salvation. Without faith in the promise of God, there is no deliverance for Noah from the judgment to come. You have to believe the promise to get into the ark. You've got to believe. Rain is coming, flood is coming, God has provided the way of escape. And lock yourself and your family inside the ark. How does baptism save us? It saves us the same way the ark saved Noah. You have to believe there is an ark of safety into which we may flee to be rescued from the flood of judgment that is coming. And the ark is the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a picture, a proclamation that the way of escape is in the cleansing blood of Christ. John Calvin famously said, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible words. He meant that the message proclaimed by the word of God read and preached and the message proclaimed in bread and wine and the water of baptism is the same message. So we miss these things. We miss these things. We miss celebrating the Lord's table at the moment because of the whole COVID-19 regulations. And baptism as well. But they are, they are words, they are pictures that point to us that the way of escape is the cleansing blood of Jesus. He meant, Calvin meant you, you do not get something in the sacraments that you don't get in the word. You don't get a different Jesus. You get the same Christ in both. You hear the word proclaimed, spoken in Holy Scripture, read and preached. And you see the word and handle the word and taste the word in the sacraments. But it is the word. And the way they work, the way you receive the benefits of both forms of the word. The word written and spoken. The word seen and touched and tasted. The way you receive the benefits is the same, by faith. Because if you took out the word baptism from verse 21 and inserted the word of God, no one would have ever had any problem with it at all. Instead of baptism which now saves you, you read the word of God which now saves you. We'd all immediately understand what Peter meant. Because how does the word of God save you? The word of God saves you by calling you to repentance from life on your own terms, to faith in Jesus. But it's Jesus who saves. And that is how baptism works too. It's what it's calling us to. Your own baptism, however many years ago, preached to you the good news. That Jesus is calling you today. All of us today and every day till we go to be with him. To repent of our sin and believe in the gospel. Jesus is the ark. Get into him. He is the way of escape. He is the only rescuer you will ever need. Christ is our substitute. Christ is our preacher. 
and Christ is our rescuer and wonderfully Christ is our victor. Verse 22, Peter says that Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. How would that have landed? A suffering church. What encouragement. The church, and if you are a believer today, you know exactly what this means. Surrounded on every side by scepticism, mockery, ridicule, opposition, and mounting suffering for the cause of the gospel to remember that seated on the throne of glory is the one who gave himself for them in his love. We are going to be ridiculed for saying certain things, that we believe certain things or we don't believe certain things. If you're going to be faithful to the word, you will be ridiculed. But what encouragement to know that the one who is seated on the throne of glory is the one who gave himself for me. He is my substitute. He is my preacher. He is my rescuer. And he is my victor. He has won the victory. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is king. The lamb wins. And that is, that is the message. So he wants to say to the church who were tempted as we are tempted to compromise, to back off, not to speak up, not to stand out, not to step out of line. The pressure is on us every day to blend in with the world. And he wants to say, no, 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 no. Stand firm and speak up because Jesus has won. Jesus has won the victory over principalities and powers, demonic, angelic and earthly for that matter. He reigns right now as king. Do you believe that, that Jesus reigns as king? So the question isn't, am I wise enough? Do I have the words or the argument? Is my rhetoric polished? Am I persuasive? Am I sophisticated in my engagement as I try to serve Jesus and do evangelism? Those are the wrong questions. The question we have to get straight is, do you trust Jesus as king? Do you believe that he reigns over every situation? He reigns over every situation, big and small. I've, I've, I've reflected on this, that coronavirus has affected the whole world. But, but God can use it just for one person. It's big enough to affect everyone, but it's personal enough for one person. And that's a picture of Christ reigns over everything. He reigns over coronavirus. He reigns over the world. And do you trust Christ as king to reign in every situation? Or do you believe that he's just taking care of the big things, but he doesn't care for you? He cares for you. In every suffering, every success, for my good and his glory. Press on, albeit through suffering, if need be. Speak for him. Live for him. Risk everything. He reigns. The victory is won. We could not be more secure. May God help us to hear to the praise of his great name that Jesus Christ is our substitute. What does that mean? He died that we might live. He is our preacher who preaches in our preaching, who witnesses in our witnessing. He is our rescuer. So get into Christ, the only ark of safety. 
and Christ has won. He is our victor and we can have perfect confidence in him. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.